Hello everyone! If you could use some good news today, then this is the Dell. Hello everyone, we've been doing this really amazing thing where we have our team members become guest co-hosts each week. And this week we have Kendra from production. How are you, Kendra? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How does it feel to be on this side of the Dell? Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> That's good. So Kendra is usually, you know, helping us out with research and writing scripts and all this really, really great stuff. And I'm excited to have you help me actually report the news this time. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, Let's jump right into it. So guys, this is our season finale of season two of The Delph. And we wanted to end on kind of a happy note. A lot of good things are happening with the country and we don't want to like damper it with any bad news. So for this episode, you'll only hear good news. We're also going to try to not say the name of he who must not be named for the entire episode. I hope we can do it. <laughs> Wish us luck. <laughs> Wish us luck. And to get us started, Kendra, kick us off. All right. Well, we have some very exciting news. Um, the pharmaceutical companies Moderna and Pfizer are both reporting over 90% success rates in their COVID-19 vaccine trials. Pfizer's vaccine is 95% effective when it comes to preventing mild and severe coronavirus. And it also has no serious side effects. And these results held true for older adults, which is particularly exciting because these are the groups that don't often respond well to mm. the experimental vaccines. So we're really excited to see that. Right. Yeah. Now the vaccines could be approved by the FDA in a few days for emergency use. And that's especially incredible because the search for a vaccine began less than a year ago typically takes years to develop and test vaccines. And Moderna and Pfizer are both actually using technology that's never been approved for use in vaccines. They're using mRNA. Okay, so what are the next steps? The FDA will review the findings and then they will vote on whether or not these vaccines can be distributed across the country. They might approve just one, they might approve both. We don't know quite yet. Okay. But days after this happens, planning for distribution to high-risk groups is going to begin. Uh, and federal officials have said that the first available doses will go to healthcare workers because COVID-19 cases are surging in the United States and across the globe. The right. goal is to prevent people from getting very serious uh, cases of the disease. So that means for younger and healthier people, you might expect to get it in later months. Some sources are reporting as early as April, uh, which means in the interim, please wear a mask. The end is in sight. It's in sight. We can do it. We're almost there. Now, Pfizer also says it could have 50 million vaccines ready by the end of the year uh, and over a billion by the end of next year. Wow. That's incredible. And people in the United States can expect to get the vaccines for free thanks to a deal set up by the federal government. That's incredible. That's a really, really good thing. I don't know about you, but 
cannot wait for this to be over. Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) So excited. So excited. Moving right into this, the folks who are going to be leading up the distribution of the vaccine, President-elect Joe Biden. And as President-elect Joe Biden prepares to take office in January, nearly half of the transition team laying the work for this new administration is made up of people of color and women. Women are in the majority. 46% of the transition staff are people of color. And this is according to new diversity data from the transition team. And they provide this to CNN. 41% of the senior staff are also people of color. The majority of the transition staff, 52%, are women. And 53% of the senior staff are also women. The new diversity figures comes as Biden is set to announce his cabinet picks and senior staff for the White House in the coming weeks. One of the first tests of his campaign pledge to build an administration that will look like America. When he was first running, one of the things he kept repeatedly saying is like, I want my cabinet to represent America. I want it to look like America. And so we're kind of seeing like the beginnings of that with this cabinet, with this transition team. How exciting is that? It's such a radical change from the team that we've been looking at. It is a radical change, and we're, we're very, very happy about it. And in order to make all of this happen, we had a lot of help from communities around the country that often get overlooked, one of them being the African-American community. Kendra, what happened with African-Americans and the 2020 election? They showed up. They showed up. So... Black voters make up 11% of the U.S. electorate, uh, and 9 out of 10 of them support Joe Biden. It's a pretty high figure. In the 2020 election, it seems that Biden may have won more critical areas in more of the Black vote than Hillary did in 2016. Wow. So we're going to take a look at some of the states where the Black vote was particularly important. Let's do it. So in Pennsylvania... uh, My state, my home state, (laughs) woot-woot. You voted in Pennsylvania. I did, yeah. (laughs) Pennsylvania is one of the states that towards the end of election day and for days after, it had most of us, you know, regardless of political party, on the very edge of our seats. Absolutely. (laughs) Biden received 93% of the vote in Philadelphia districts, uh, where 75% of the population was Black. Combating the Trump votes, he's getting in more rural areas. Right. Wow. I said his name. It's okay. <laughs> I said his name. <laughs> I feel like we should take like a shot. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I have, no, I have no liquor here. I love the whisper. I said his name. <laughs> so, yeah, that's very, that's very exciting. I'm sorry. <laughs> And now onto Michigan. <laughs> so Michigan also had a huge increase in voter turnout this year compared to 2016. But it, it's black voters in Detroit that made a significant difference for Joe Biden in Michigan. Uh, he won the city with 94% of the vote. 94% of the vote. <laughs> wow. That's, that's, I don't even, that's incredible. It is. And one thing that really helped ensure that people came out and voted 
is actually religious and civil rights leaders in the community. Uh, mm. They developed strategies to ensure that citizens' right to vote were protected. That's incredible. Michigan went Trump last time. Pennsylvania went Trump last time. And Biden was able to flip these states. And it looks like a lot of that was just due to the black vote, which is just really remarkable. And perhaps there is no other state more just like eye-opening and incredible than Georgia. What happened in Georgia? I couldn't have said it better myself, but Georgia, <laughs> Georgia turned blue this election for the first time since 1992. 28 years. 28 years since Bill Clinton's first run. That's incredible. It, it's unbelievable. I, I didn't expect it to happen. Um, right. I was really pleasantly surprised. <laughs> right, right. But much of this monumental feat can be attributed to the incredible Stacey Abrams. So she is a black woman from Georgia. She is a queen. She is a queen from Georgia. And we all, we all need to like bow down and really just like give her the like the props that she's due. She's literally transformed a state that pollsters were like, yeah, it's kind of Republican. I mean, she's had a lot of support from other groups in the area, but turned it around. And Stacey Abrams, come on the show. <laughs> we love you. You're incredible. She's an unwavering champion of democracy. And she yeah. also just simply never stops working. Her commitment to people being able to vote in the United States is unbelievable. I don't, it's, right. it's so incredible. So she served for on the Georgia State Senate for 11 years and then actually served as the wow. Democratic leader for seven. And in <sighs> that role, she's the first African-American ever to hold the position. Just constantly breaking barriers. Stacey Abrams, we love you. And then in 2018, she runs for governor. She runs for governor against Brian Kemp. Now, Brian mm. Kemp at the time was the Secretary of State. In that role, typically you would be in charge of overseeing the voting process, making sure everything happened legally, smoothly. So he's overseeing the election that he's also participating in. Precisely. Uh-huh. Shailen, I don't know about you, but some might call this a conflict of interest. Yeah, you know, just kind of like a little tiny bit. Not Kemp. No, he felt really good about it. He felt he was not biased. Uh, and then he went on to win the election. Of course. I, there was this period where he's overseeing voter purges. So folks who had not voted in recent elections, his office just purged them from voting rolls. So folks who went to the polls to vote may not have found their names on the rolls because he deleted them. There were court cases against it, had those rolls reinstated. But yeah, he prevailed. This was literally... An election that was stolen from Stacey Abrams. And Stacey Abrams was aware. Fair Fight, which is an organization that looks to make sure that every American has a voice in our election system, targeted 20 battleground states, and they educated voters, they encouraged participation in the election. According to Fair Fight, they registered 800,000 new voters. Which is incredible. 
It's almost a million people. Her hard work has paid off. We see kind of like what happened with Georgia and the slim margin of votes. What happened in this election? Only 14,000 votes placed Joe Biden above our current president. Abrams' organization reached voters in every county in Georgia. So the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, recently released a statement that he'd received pressure from South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham to find ways to throw away ballots by deeming them invalid. You described uh, to the Washington Post a conversation you had with Republican Senator Lindsey Graham on Friday. You came away with the impression that he essentially wanted you to look for ways to toss out mail-in ballots. What exactly did he say to you? Well, he asked if the ballots could be matched back to the voters. And then I I got the sense it implied that uh, then you could throw those out. uh, And he really would look at the counties with the highest um, frequent error of uh, signatures. So that's that's the impression that I got. But, uh, you know, we've got signature match in place. We have signature match when you request the ballot, absolutely ballot. And then we have signature match when it comes in. And then with our new online absentee ballot portal, uh, that has photo ID. And so we feel really confident that the election officials have done their job. And that's what they're charged to do is do their job and make sure the signatures match. I just want to be clear on this, uh, Mr. Secretary. You say uh, Senator Graham wanted you to find ways to get rid of legally cast ballots uh, because CNN asked him about these allegations. He denied them. He says that's ridiculous. Uh, uh, His words, that's ridiculous. Well, it's just an implication that uh, uh, look hard and see how many ballots you could throw out. And uh, and I think that they're looking at that as part of a court case. And one actually was subsequently filed, wasn't it? Now, Raffensperger said he was stunned that Graham would ask him to throw away legally cast ballots and that he wouldn't allow it. But it, it's just another example of attempted voter suppression. And Republicans are like, uh, they're they're not new to it but they are getting particularly worse at it, (laughs) which is unfortunate because now we can see that kind of like right out in the open, a sitting senator who just won his own uh, re-election barely is pressuring a neighboring state that he's not even senator of and pressuring Republican officials there to toss out ballots because his side isn't winning. It's weird. Weird and it's and it's very obvious. It's evident like what they're looking to do is compare signatures. I love how the Georgia Secretary of State uh, Raffensperger is also Republican and then goes out and it's like no, yeah, this is what this guy from my party did. It's like, oh, this guy like a stand-up guy. Good for him. Good for him for having like a backbone he didn't like give in to. We love that honesty and law prevailed over partisanship. Heaven bless him. Yeah. And um, I mean, we have a bit of a fight to go even after this presidential election has ended because we now have um, we now have Georgia round two and Stacey Abrams. She's not finished. What's happening now in, in Georgia round two? So Stacey Abrams has now turned her attention to the Senate races in Georgia, both of which will be facing runoff elections. 
a runoff, for those of you who don't know, occurs when no candidates receive the majority of votes on election day. Uh, And then the two candidates who do receive the most votes face off again in a later election. We will be looking at uh, Democrat Raphael Warnock, and he is facing off against incumbent Republican Kelly Loeffler. And then we also have another incumbent Republican, David Perdue, and he's facing off against Democrat John Ossoff. These are really, really interesting races. Uh, we spoke about this last week for a little bit, <laughs> how both of these Republican senators, Loeffler and Perdue, have both used their office and their private Senate briefings to receive information about the government's plans for coronavirus and against shutdowns and travel. And they've either sold shares or invested money in companies that would benefit from the changes, which is obviously just like beyond corrupt. And, you know, you are supposed to, I mean, you're a public servant. Before you even look out for yourself, you want to look out for your state. And they didn't do that. They literally were coating their pockets. It's really unfortunate. And Republicans actually had a chance to have a primary and to replace them with someone else. But no, they didn't replace them. They let these two corrupt folks go. And so the question now is like, do we want to send someone back who takes kind of like inside government information and uses that to, you know, sell stock in a company because they know it's about to tank? Or do we want to like elect someone who's fighting for, you know, a minimum wage that's affordable, a $15 minimum wage? Or do we want to, you know, elect someone who is um, fighting for health care for folks? These, these two Republicans want to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, leaving tens of millions of Americans uh, without insurance during the height of the pandemic. So I don't know. I feel like the, the options are very clear here. But um, Georgia, if you're listening, don't do it. Don't do it. Anyway, this is this is good news. Uh, back to Stacey Abrams. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess our question is, what is Stacey Abrams going to do next? Oh, what does Stacey Abrams do next? We hope that she'll run for DNC chair. I mean, she could flip Georgia. She could flip Texas next. She could flip Florida. The prospects are overwhelming. DNC chair and then president Stacey abrams for president (laughs) yeah love her support that another really incredible community that was very instrumental in and biden's win were native americans across the country in new mexico in arizona and especially in arizona so native americans um and and voting right advocates have long argued that if Native Americans and other minority groups are mobilized, they could literally change a tight race. And this year we saw that. Arizona was one of those states along with like Pennsylvania and Georgia and and Nevada and Michigan. It kind of like took its 
time with like the counting bit and you're kind of like oh arizona where are you going what's happening what's going on here and um but i didn't end up winning and it was definitely due to large voter turnout in tribal land in arizona and compared to 2016 turnout surged and it helped joe biden win arizona And that's a state that a Democrat hasn't won since 1996. (laughs) Native Americans, they came out and they were the like the folks who made the difference and swung Arizona towards Arizona. The very people who this is their land. This is literally their land. And I think it would be incredible for them to be included in the decision-making. They've already just decided how Arizona is going to vote. And now pressure is building on the Biden administration to get at least one Native American into his cabinet. They've been here for eons before the first pilgrim, the first colonist came here. I cannot believe that a Native American in the cabinet hasn't just been like mandatory. (laughs) Why hasn't that just been like, duh it's like this forgotten community of of people and the navajo and the hopi reservations in arizona they cast nearly sixty thousand ballots a few weeks ago on the election day and that's compared to forty two thousand back in 2016 so it's nearly twenty thousand more votes uh this time around and biden won arizona by a little over ten thousand votes so literally these folks really changed like trajectory of Arizona. It's incredible. Turnout in some of the in some of the precincts on the reservations, they were rising by 12, 13 percent. And um, that's incredible. Compared to the rest of, of Arizona, the increase was only about four percent. This is amazing when you consider too that the United States yeah. government has for a very long time pushed Native Americans off their land, denied their voting right. rights. And Native American people, I think this voting shows, they're not giving up on the federal government. I'm just really happy that, you know, they showed up. And I really want the Biden administration to make them involved. There shouldn't be even any, like, thought into it. It should be like, yeah, of course we need Native Americans in the cabinet. And, like, not one, two, as many as possible. Like, I mean, I guess we're getting to, like, the wish list part of like what we want from the Biden administration. So this pivots really, really nicely to our next thing. So we're going to talk about who we would like to see in Biden's cabinet. Native Americans. (laughs) We want Stacey Abrams for the next president. Oh, I mean, she could technically come in and the cabinet. I mean, I don't know what she would, her skill sets like just, (sighs) she's so incredible. Maybe like establish federal voting policies, but yeah. Can you imagine her like Secretary of State? She's just like going around the world representing the nation. Oh my gosh, Stacey Abrams. Did we just find that Stacey Abrams, Secretary of State? She's just like doing peace deals around the world. That's the person we need. She will literally make all of us proud. Like, I can just see her, like, just, like, in war zones. And, like, she's like, nope, this war's over. We're going to sign a peace deal now. 
going to register everyone to vote. Emerald, yeah, everyone needs to register to vote. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. I like, interjected into your thing. Okay. Let's let's go. Let's go. Let's go. So, lawyer and advisor Ron Klain will be Biden's chief of staff. Other positions are still up in the air, though, like defense secretary post, which could go to uh, the former Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, Michelle Flournoy. Secretary of State could go to former Obama National Security Advisor and former UN Ambassador Susan Rice. Now, Rice's past experience at the State Department would help make her well-equipped for the position, and we definitely need the experience. Well, I mean, wouldn't be mad at that. She was actually on the shortlist for vice presidential pick, so definitely has the chops to do that. She was UN ambassador, national security advisor. She's definitely familiar with President-elect Biden. Still kind of secretly rooting for Stacey Abrams, but uh, Ambassador Rice would be really cool as Secretary of State as well. I feel like she could also like kind of walk into like a war zone and and be like, all right, we're signing peace till now. I don't know if she could like register voters, but definitely feel like she could bring the peace. So that's good. Absolutely. And we're in, I hate to say it, but it's very unprecedented times. We need all the experience I think we can get. And just like good people, not like, you know, BP, Exxon Mobile, like, you know, or Exxon Mobile executives. We need like, like good people, like good, wholesome people. A potential secretary of the treasury could be Lyle Bernard, the Federal Reserve governor. Um, the financial team Biden decides on is key uh, because it's going to start working on a coronavirus relief package and economic yeah. stimulus. These things are very ardently opposed by Republicans, but things that Americans need right now. I feel like this is also something that could go into like the Georgia campaigns because they're potentially going to send back to folks who don't want to give Georgians any additional coronavirus relief. They don't want to give them another stimulus check. They don't want to extend their unemployment benefits, even though, you know, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of Georgians have been laid off. I mean, yeah, I feel like I want to keep plugging Georgia here. It's so important. Stacey Abrams. <laughs> Brainard would be the first woman to serve in the position. Secretary of the Treasury has never been held by a woman. But another woman, Senator Elizabeth Warren, has also been discussed as a potential option, but it seems like her political stance would make it difficult for her to be confirmed by Congress, uh, which right. is a part of the process of assembling a presidential cabinet. Another like weird thing about uh, about a potential Elizabeth Warren nomination is that she would have to resign from her seat in the Senate and the governor of Massachusetts would then nominate someone to fill in her place until they have a special election. Her governor is a Republican, meaning that he would replace her probably with a Republican. And now that we're like barely at 50-50 in the Senate, we can't afford to kind of lose another, um, we can't afford to lose a, a, a Democrat in the Senate. So I feel like kind of she's probably going to stay put in the short term. It's kind of sad, but that's where we are. Okay, back to happy, happy news. 
as Chalen said earlier, but just to plug it one more time, the nominations are why the runoffs in Georgia for Democrats John Osif and Raphael Warnock are key. In a Republican-controlled Senate, it'll be extremely difficult for Biden to get his nominees approved by Congress because they will need a few Republican votes. So the choices for each department, ranging from defense to education, then become limited. And some great candidates might be overlooked or voted against by Senate Republicans. Right. I, I mean, we've kind of seen the folks that Republicans have approved from Kavanaugh to Barrett. They're into really interesting folks. So if we want to provide a higher caliber or cabinet positions, the Biden administration will recommend uh, we need a Democratic Senate to do it. Um, and this is why winning Georgia is that much more important. Another certainty is that Joe Biden has said that no one in his family will have an office in the White House. <laughs> Nobody will sit in on meetings or have a relationship with foreign correspondents or countries when Biden becomes president. A White House cabinet without nepotism. Can you believe that? That's crazy. No more uh, Ivanka and Jared. Like It's just going to be like normal again. Absolutely. And it'll be interesting, too, because the only people that seem to have kept jobs in the White House are apparently related to Trump or his colleagues. I'm excited right. to see some people make it through the full term without blood relations. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Wow. But perhaps no other person is as emblematic of President-elect Biden wanting to take a different tack. <laughs> Than the current administration is his selection of the now vice president elect Kamala Harris. She's just amazing. We love Kamala Harris, and here's here's a bit of clips of her greatest hits. Are you willing or are you not willing to give him the authority to be fully independent of your ability, statutorily and legally, to fire him? He is. He has the yes or no, sir. He, he has the full independence. Is authorized by those regulations. Did you have any communications with Russian officials uh, for any reason during the campaign that have not been disclosed uh, in public or to this committee? Uh, I don't recall it. Sir, I have me. just a few. Well, you minutes. let me qualify. I, if, okay. if I don't qualify, you'll accuse me of lying. Do you believe the previous interrogation techniques were immoral? I'm not asking, do you believe they were legal? I'm asking, do you believe they were immoral? Senator, I believe that CIA it's did extraordinary yes no work to prevent another attack on this country. Please you. answer the question. Senator, I, I think I've answered the question. No, you've not. Have you had any conversation about Robert Mueller or his investigation with anyone at that firm? Yes or no? Well, is there a person you're talking about? I'm asking you a very direct question, yes or no. I, I need to know the. Uh, I'm not sure I know everyone who works at that law firm. I don't think you need to. I think you need to know who you talked with. I've had six background investigations over 26 years. Sir, as it relates to the recent allegations, are you willing to have them do it? The, the, the witness testimony is before you. No witness who was there supports that I was there. Okay, I'm going to take or, that as a no and we can move on. Has the president or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation of anyone? Yes or no, please, sir. Um, the 
president or anybody else. Seems you'd remember something like that and be able to tell us. Yeah, but I'm, I'm trying to grapple with the word suggest. Tell us more about Kamala. Or, I'm sorry, excuse me. Tell us more about Vice President-elect Harris. <laughs> so Vice President-elect Harris is a trifecta of firsts. She's <laughs> the first female, the first African-American, and the first South Asian vice president that the United States has ever had. Yeah. I'm really excited to see what she does. I'm really excited to get to watch a woman in the White House. And she has so much experience. So I can imagine that President-elect Biden's going to probably use her a lot. Much how he was used quite often during the Obama administration. So that's incredible. And then it's not only like Kamala, excuse me, Vice President-elect Harris, making history, but the spouses of both the president-elect and the vice president-elect, they're also making history. Yeah. Jill Biden is going to continue her position as a community college professor when she becomes first lady. Which is so awesome. She'll be the first first lady to work while her spouse is commander-in-chief. I feel like we should start calling her Professor Flotus. Professor Flotus. I second that. That's really awesome. And meanwhile, Doug Emhoff, Kamala Harris's husband, is set to become the first second gentleman and the first Jewish spouse of a vice president. A lot of firsts. We're just knocking off firsts. President-elect Biden also sent a subtle but very strong message after his victory speech. His and Senator Harris's families all wore masks when they were on stage celebrating Biden's win. Uh, definitely was just another reason to take a, a big, socially distanced sigh of relief. We're all going to be under a different administration that actually believes in science. Finally. Coming back to normalcy. In a long four years. But happy, happy episode. Let's keep going. <laughs> and Biden hasn't just made commitments in terms of the coronavirus. He's also pledged to begin rejoining the Paris Agreement, which provides a global framework to fight climate change. Uh, it aims to strengthen countries' ability to deal with it and to support countries as they pursue cleaner energy options. It also expects its members to make pledges and set goals to cut emissions. And overall, we're pretty hopeful that the president-elect and his team, whoever they eventually will be, um, they're going to definitively change the path that this country has been on for the past four years. Now, despite all the positives that we've listed, there are unfortunately a lot of folks out there who don't see these topics in a positive way. Uh, if you're lucky to be able to see your family this year, we understand that the gratitude for such an occasion in the pandemic might be offset by the tension of the current political climate. Um, so we suggest playing games, maybe investing in a joke book, uh, and keeping your mouth full at all times. <laughs> With really, really good food. As we close out this episode and um, this season of The Delve, we really want to thank you for listening. It's been a tough year, and when there feels like there's no good news to share, it's, it's really hard to stay involved. We want to thank you for listening because listening and acting is what allowed us to make this episode with a bit of hope amidst the chaos that has been 2020. Till we speak again, stay mindful, wear a mask, 
and vote in the runoffs if you can in Georgia. This has been season two of The Delve. We'll see you later.